Michael Stewart, five. Eleanor Bumpers, six. Michael Griffith, eight. Raymond Santana, Yusuf Salam, Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Corey Wise, 10. Yusuf Hawkins, 11. Rodney King, 12. Anthony Baez, 16. Abner Luima, 19. Patrick Dorsman, 19. Amadou Diallo, 20. James Bird, 20. Sean Bell, 28. Oscar Grant, 30. James Craig Anderson, 32. Trayvon Martin, 33. Eric Gardner, 35. Michael Brown, 35. Walter Scott, 36. Tamir Rice, 36. Freddie Gray, 36. Laquan McDonald, 36. Alton Sterling, 37. Terrence Crutcher, 38. Botham Jean, 39. Brianna Taylor, 41. Ahmad Arbery, 41. George Floyd, 41. The names I called out were of African Americans and Hispanics who were killed by the police or had their life taken after being chased by white mobs or have been victimized by the criminal justice system in some form or fashion. And the numbers I stated after the names, that's the age that I was when these stories made huge national news. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, maybe wondering, how do you remember something like this at the age of five, Michael Stewart, or at the age of six, Eleanor Bumpers? But you got to remember that growing up in New York City and then later on in Jersey, this stuff was everywhere. This stuff was on the radio. I remember my father always driving me to school and 1010 wins as well as WLIB. If you're from New York, you know what I'm talking about. These are huge stations. This stuff was always on there. I remember it being on TV the Phil Donahue show always had something related to these issues like it is always had something related to this. And in every newspaper that you can get your hands on, it was printed everywhere on the front page. And of course, I remember even just overhearing my parents talking to their friends about this stuff. Like it literally, you could not escape this stuff. This stuff was everywhere. So as I got older, there was a slow understanding that I would be treated differently. And it was really important for me to understand this because it was a matter of life or death. So if the stories or the headlines didn't get through to me, my parents made it very clear to me and my three sisters how society would look at us. So I have three older sisters and I remember my moms and my pops putting us in the living room multiple times and telling us, about how society would look at us. But I remember they would save the most brutal of truths for me. And then they would go through the talk with me and go through the checklist of things not to do to make sure that I survive, such as never wearing all black clothing, never wearing a hoodie, not staying out late. If you get stopped by the police, no talk back. Take your citation or whatever it is, 
you survive to get home to let mom and dad take care of any issues if anything wasn't on the up and up. Or if you're driving, keep your license, your registration, your insurance, all that stuff in the front visor so that you don't have to make any sudden moves when you get stopped. And I get it. Look, if you are listening to this and you can't identify, this is some heavy stuff. But this is actually where I need you to listen really intently because this is my normal. This is my reality. As you can tell by the ages, this is something that has been with me from a very early age. And there are there are millions of men and women who look just like me who are carrying this weight also. And this this weight obviously is racism and it is very pervasive. It is insidious. There are times when you can point it out very easy and then there are times when it's not so easy to see, but it affects our lives, particularly my life in so many different ways and so many different daily interactions. Let me tell you a quick story. During my second year of medical school, I remember having a quick talk, passing by talk 20, 30 minutes with a security guard, campus security guard. We didn't know each other very well, but we were just, you know, shooting stuff, having fun. But then I went on my way to the library. Several hours later, I took a break. The campus was still open and I decided to get something to eat and was sitting outside of the library. And apparently someone had called campus security and said that there's a suspicious person who's on campus. That same security officer, no lie, came up to me and asked what I was doing there, then asked for my ID. And seriously, like I at this point thought this was a prank. I was like, I just talked to you in my mind. And then I said to him, I was like, we were just talking several hours ago. What? And then I paused and then literally like, just like a movie, just like a flashback. I just started thinking about the conversations that I had with my parents. And I just said, watch yourself. And I said to him, I'm reaching for my wallet. Let me, that's where my ID is. I gave him my wallet. I showed him my ID and everything was cool. And I was on my way. And to many who are not, who've never seen or heard of these type of situations or can't identify with this, this may not seem like a big deal. Like you're on campus and someone called, just show your ID. That's it. But to me and those who know where this is going, those who have had a similar type of situation, you got to ask yourself or you got to think about this. Like if I was white or some other race or ethnicity that you would quote unquote expect to be on campus, would this have happened to them? Not only does racism affect our daily interactions, but it also affects what zip code we grow up in. It is also the root of many healthcare disparities. COVID-19 is just an example. It's one of the biggest magnifying glasses that we have, but it's just one of the examples that we have that could be traced back to racism. So all of this has become normalized to me. And I know that being a doctor is not going to protect me from this. But for me, now that I'm a father, what's even more heartbreaking, and I look at my two sons, the oldest being three, is I'm already wondering when that talk is going to occur. And I ultimately know that I I really can't prepare them for a world that looks at them as sinister. So basically what I'm saying is, is as much as I try to be an optimist, thinking that this is the tipping point, that list of names and ages that I started off with, that's just a fractional list. 
of things that we know of, right? That at those times, people thought that that was the tipping point. And I was wrong then. Whoever at that point thought that those were tipping points were wrong then also. But we still go on. But I say this. When the crowds lessen, because they will, when the news cycle goes on to something else, because it will, we're still going to be fighting this. We're still going to be carrying this weight. And that's where we need white people who are allies, white people to step up when it's not convenient. I really want to underscore that. I need y'all to do this when it's not convenient. So, for example, when you're on rounds, and a patient says an off-color comment about race. You need to nip that in the bud and say something there. Don't wait till I walk out the room. Take care of that then. If it happens in a surgeon lounge, take care of that. If you're at dinner with your friends and your friend says something that is mad bigoted in nature, call that shit out. If you don't know how to be an ally and you're looking for education, maybe some resources before you put yourself out there. I get it. In the show notes, there are links that you can educate yourself on racism in healthcare. There is a link to the Commonwealth Fund. There's something to the New York Times, New England Journal of Medicine, as well as some articles from PubMed. Also, there is this excellent curated list that I didn't create. I can't take credit for it. But it's a Google Doc that I will put in the show notes. And this document is termed the Anti-Racism Resources. And it has multiple things from what to talk to your children about, articles to read, videos to watch, podcasts to subscribe to, books to read, film and TV series to watch. It's a really exhaustive list that I think uh, is worth looking at. And it's worth a conversation. But Uh, I can't stress it anymore that this is something that we alone can't do. We really need help from the other side and we really need to do this together. So I know this is something that we're or you are not used to hearing on Docs Outside the Box, but it's really important to understand each other, to understand the backgrounds of what makes us tick, of what we are dealing with. And it just makes us a better physician community. So if you have any comments, if you want to continue this discussion, you can hit me up on Dr. Darko at Instagram, or you can go to the homepage, Dr. Darko. click on the blue icon on the right-hand side of the screen that says, ask me a question and leave me a message on SpeakPipe. I'm looking forward to your comments and make sure that you are subscribed because later this week, I'm going to have a powerhouse episode with Dr. Lori Punch as well as Dr. Brian Williams, who respectively are at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as University of Chicago, the south side of Chicago. And we're going to be talking about trauma surgery, community, and how deep bullets really go. It doesn't just affect the patient. It really has an effect on the community. So in light of what's been going on over the past week, this is an episode that's upcoming that you don't want to miss. All right, y'all. Catch you on the next one. Peace. And before I end this episode, you may have heard a clock ticking in the background. That clock was ticking for eight minutes and 46 seconds. 
Now, during that time, you may have found it really hard to hear what I was saying. You may have found it a little bit annoying. And what that time interval represents is the amount of time that former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, how long he had his knee on Mr. George Floyd's neck. I don't know about you, but that would seem like a long time. And if that was annoying to you, if that was distracting to you, imagine what it's like to have a knee on your neck for that period of time. I want you to think about everything that I was able to explain to you during that time. If you're listening while you're driving, think about how far you were able to drive during that time. If you're multitasking while listening to this episode, doing the dishes, sweeping the floor, doing laundry, think about how far you've been able to get with that task while listening to this interval. Eight minutes and 46 seconds is an eternity when your neck and airway is being constricted and you can't breathe. Nobody deserves to die like this. But for a large segment of the United States, it's a reality for folks like me. And we might be your fellow med student, resident, fellow, attending, and also patient. So if you've listened to this show in the past, you know there are times when I say, look, no more half-stepping. You got to get off the fence. And this time definitely epitomizes, represents that sentiment. No half-stepping in this situation. I need you all to get off the fence and do something. I'm out.